0: This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC
1: Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural
2: community come out.
1: Once people leave communities, they, don't, they generally don't return. Countrywide.
3: Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing
1: businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers
3: for
4: exactly.
5: Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio.
4: Hello and welcome to Countrywide. I'm Bridget Herman. Today on the show, farmers are warning of a mango shortage on the horizon.
6: At the moment, I'd say it's not great. The the weather's definitely had an impact on us this year.
4: There's a new plant milk on the block and you'll hear about the humble cow that set a world record. But first, you've probably heard of glyphosate, the herbicide better known as Roundup. It's been wrapped up in controversy in recent years with claims it could be carcinogenic. The federal court will hear from expert witnesses on behalf of 800 cancer victims in a case against multinational chemical company Monsanto, which is now owned by Bayer. The judge will need to decide if Roundup and the active ingredient glyphosate is a cause of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. The 800 Australians in the class action come from all walks of life, but many are involved in farming and agriculture, or vegetation management. Lead lawyer running the class action at Maurice Blackburn, Andrew Watson, says the Australian case follows a number of cases in the US and Europe.
0: What that led to is us initiating this proceeding some years ago uh, in order to obtain compensation for those people who had developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, as a result of their exposure to Roundup. And today, uh, the trial commences uh, to determine whether or not uh, glyphosate is in fact a carcinogen to humans.
6: And how many people in your class action?
0: Uh, Apparently, we have 800 registered, uh, but obviously enough, there will be more people than that. Uh, Some people won't yet have registered. Uh, So we're talking hundreds of Australians who've been affected by this
6: And I would imagine a number of those would be farmers, because we have already reported on a number of farmers having cancer that they claim was from Roundup.
0: Yep, Uh, there's certainly a significant proportion of the the class who have worked in the agricultural sector. There's also uh, people like our lead applicant, Mr McNichol, uh, who worked in vegetation management, Uh, and so was spraying weeds uh, pretty much every day of his working life. And then, of course, there are some people who are domestic users. Uh, They tend to be uh, what might be described as more heavy domestic users, people with sort of two-acre blocks and the like. So it, it covers a range of different people in a range of different occupations, but certainly a number of people who are from the agricultural industry.
4: Andrew Watson, lead lawyer at Maurice Blackburn Lawyers, handling the class action against Monsanto and Roundup. He was talking to Michael Condon. Bayer has been contacted for comment. However, Grains Producers Australia spokesperson and Victorian farmer Andrew Witteman says he isn't aware of any issues with glyphosate and that it has been a safe and reliable chemical when used according to the label. He says the chemical has formed the backbone of modern Australian farming practices He says he's concerned that Australia wouldn't be able to produce as much food if it is taken away, because there isn't a replacement for it.
0: What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide,
5: the politics of food and farming.
4: The biggest threat to Australia's bee industry is varroa mite, and it's been spreading ever since it was first detected in New South Wales last year. The tiny mites have devastated bee populations around the world, and Australia has been trying desperately to eradicate it, but it's looking tougher with every passing week. There have been four new detections of varroa mite in New South Wales, meaning that there's now 254 infected premises. As that number increases, so too do the calls for the varroa mite response strategy to move to management. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries says it is still confident that eradication is possible, but one of the parties on the Consultative Committee on Emergency Plants, Pests, says that the votes among the 26 parties on the committee are divided. The Australian Honeybee Industry Council CEO, Danny Laferve, told Kim Honan that there's a lot of indecision and currently there's no clear pathway forward. Is ARBEC still supporting eradication?
7: Yeah, look, we're working with the NMG and, and the CCP to try and forge a pathway forward. is really complex. It's not as simple as just saying that's it. We're stopping. We're moving on. There's a lot of factors involved in this. There's 26 votes um, in this, and and the votes in the CCP are divided. The votes amongst amongst the membership base in in Arabic and other organisations uh, are divided. We're seeing uh, voices from around Australia. Uh, in support of continuing yet we're having uh, real big impacts on beekeepers on the ground and uh, that's what concerns me the most here is the human factor uh, in this response. So we're seeing a, a big voice from around New South Wales um, to pull up stumps and move on uh, and we're trying to navigate all those opinions uh, and come up with a the best-case scenario, or workable solution to move forward.
3: So are there half the industry groups that have withdrawn their support for eradication? Is that what you're suggesting?
7: No, there's a big divide even within the 26 parties about uh, the ability for this response to move forward or not. Um, and whether it should change direction or not. So there is no clear consensus. There is no clear pathway forward at the moment. And we've been madly having uh, CCEPP and NMG meetings. In fact, we've had four or five in the last fortnight to try and get a consensus and find a way forward to move forward with this response uh, in whichever direction it needs to take.
3: And I guess much the same within the, the beekeeping industry. There's that divide there. There's that, you know, split. Some beekeepers want to pursue eradication still, while some think it's really time to move to management.
7: I agree, it's an incredibly complex uh, situation we've got ourselves in at the moment. Um, Just no clarity, no no clear direction um, from any part of of industry, government, anything like that. And it's really messy and we're trying to navigate the way through this the best we can to try and get some clarity as quickly as we can. Hence why we've had a number of these emergency national management group meetings to try and um, get a clear pathway forward So we can be very clear to the beekeepers on the ground what their future holds, because I'm acutely aware that they've got no direction and, and are really struggling with this whole response at the moment.
4: Danny Leferve, CEO of the Australian Honeybee Industry Council. You're listening to Countrywide. I'm Bridget Herman. Mangoes are a staple for Australians every summer, but farmers are warning mango lovers to prepare for an undersupply of the tropical fruit this Christmas. And it's all because it's been an unseasonably warm winter in North Queensland, as Lucy Cooper reports.
8: At a North Queensland mango farm, the season isn't shaping up the way everyone had hoped.
6: At the moment, I'd say it's not great. The, the weather's definitely had an impact on us this year.
8: David Lawrence is the farm manager for two of Manbaloo Mango's farms. Manbaloo is Australia's largest Kensington Pride grower, with two farms in the NT, three in the Atherton Tablelands, and two in the Burdekin region of North Queensland. Speaking at Horseshoe Lagoon, one of Mambaloo's Burdekin-based farms which has 18,000 mango trees, David said it was August when he realised it was going to be a difficult season.
6: I would say beginning of August, first week of August, we're usually pretty cold but we sort of didn't really get the temperatures that we wanted
8: Mangoes need cold winter nights to grow fruit throughout spring and summer. So you need colder temperatures to induce buds and bud break,
6: which then forms flowers. Consecutive weeks of cold temperatures, anything below, I'd say 12 degrees is perfect consecutively for weeks or up to a month would really help. We've had a couple below 12s, only a handful but not really consecutively. Most of them have been the coldest we've sort of been. Have been around that 16 degrees as minimums, so it's not optimal. It's been above normal temperatures for winter, hence the flowering of the mangoes. It sort of slowed it down and made it a lot later than usual.
8: So David says it's been colder than average because of poor mango flowering. But has it actually been a warmer winter? Here's senior climatologist for the Bureau of Meteorology, Greg Browning, to explain.
9: It has been a warm winter, so temperatures, uh, maximums and minimums have been around a degree above the, uh, the long-term average. Uh, so it has been a particularly warm winter Um hasn't been especially dry. There's been some good rain in some areas around Northern Queensland, but certainly right across Queensland, we've seen above temperatures for maximums and minimums this winter. Uh, Certainly the forecast is showing quite a strong signal for above average temperatures continuing. And we do expect that continue right throughout spring, basically, and uh, uh, rainfall will be probably closer to average, uh, nothing exceptional there, but certainly ongoing warm conditions and, yeah, likely to continue into to summer. So uh, certainly they're going to get those warm days for the, the fruit, um, but, um, yeah, the, there won't be too many cool nights sort of going forward as we get into the warmer time of the year.
8: Slow flowering essentially results in low yields. I would
6: definitely say below average at the moment. We're probably sitting at about 30% of our usual yield but um, I'd expect that to increase significantly over the next two to three weeks.
8: That significant increase David is referring to is because the temperature will now increase with spring upon us, but it won't be a saving grace.
6: We'll have still the best quality mangoes and there just won't be as, quite as many this year.
8: I hit the streets to get people's reaction to fewer North Queensland mangoes at Christmas time.
3: That's really sad, actually. What will happen to our mango daiquiris? We will be devastated.
8: (laughs) Whilst there might not be as many, there will still be great quality mangoes on supermarket shelves. And really that's just part and parcel of life providing food to people.
6: That's just farming and the cycles, nature. It's never always gonna be the same every year. Um, There's a lot of different factors that come involved, like colder weather, longer wet seasons, which seem to hold the colder weather out for longer. Yeah, there's quite a few factors, but it's mainly just nature.
4: David Lawrence, farm manager for Australia's largest Kensington Pride mango grower, Manblue Mangoes, ending that story. This is Countrywide. When it comes to plant-based milks, there's plenty of choice already available on supermarket shelves. There's oat, almond, soy, rice, even macadamia. And while they often look like cow's milk, none of them actually taste like cow's milk. That is, until now. The newest entrant to the market is coming out of Queensland, making use
10: of a very prominent crop grown there. Milk and sugar could soon be much more than how you take your tea. At a biofutures hub being built in Mackay, scientists are hoping to produce the next big thing in dairy alternatives, sugar milk. The idea is to turn fermented sugarcane microbiomes, communities of microorganisms found in the plant, into proteins that are scientifically identical to those found in dairy milk. It's still early days, but University of Queensland professor of microbiology, Mark Turner, says the shelf-stable drink could be an excellent source of protein.
5: Their microbes are actually modified or engineered to include a gene, that can allow it to produce a specific protein of interest. So there's a lot of interest in producing casein protein, which is the main protein in milk. Startup companies and researchers um, around the world are looking at now is using things like sugar cane um, and other, you know. Byproducts products of sugarcane
10: processing. There are still plenty of unknowns, like whether sugar milk would have the same health benefits as other plant-based or dairy milk and what it might mean for cane growers. Made from sugar or cane waste after it's been through the mill, Mackay Sugar CEO Yannick Olias says that it could lower exports, but the upside would be an economic boost and a new incentive to plant more cane.
5: First of all, we don't have we, we create the value add here, which is good for Australia. The next thing is, just like with the refinery we we don't have all the transport cost for getting our sugar somewhere else. We can basically, like we say, just chuck it over the fence. It's not necessarily to take it away from export. it is having the choice, the optionality of doing the one or the other. If you have two customers, that's generally where you get a better price. Having said that. Obviously if there is a bigger market, both now domestically and we still have the world market and especially up in Asia who is desiring Australian sugar all together that, that builds on a positive future because then maybe we just have to see if we together growers and millers can create even more more cane and more raw sugar. Because the market simply is
0: bigger.
10: Farmers have seen plenty of new and innovative technologies that make use of sugarcane and plenty that have never made it to market. Cane Growers Mackay President Kevin Borg says it's important to be part of the discussion.
6: My real hope is that growers are part of this. I'll be very disappointed if growers can't be part of it. I think it's got to be a value chain proposition. Uh, growers, millers, whoever else stakeholders have all got to do you know uh, be part of it and get something out of it otherwise uh, i'm not sure where this industry will end up but i I think just as using sugar you can look at it that um, you know it's just another use for sugar if we can afford to just put it over the fence into a plant that's producing protein, then I think there's a premium there to be paid.
10: The company backing the idea, Cauldron, received $528,000 from the Queensland government to get it off the ground. Chief Executive Michelle Stansfield says they're waiting on regulatory approvals to take it to the next stage.
11: Progressive cane farmers might start looking at shoring this up if they see economic upside. We don't want to be stealing from an industry, we want to be adding to an industry.
10: Around the world, dairy companies are investing in this kind of technology to shore up their supply chains. And while it may not be Australia's cup of tea just yet, dairy industry advocates East Oz Milk say it's worth considering. They've already spoken to representatives of the project and all parties have agreed more talks would be beneficial.
4: Abby Holter reporting that story. This is Countrywide with Bridget Herman. And to another very curious story about milk. Instead of beer pouring out from kegs, a South Australian dairy company is looking to offer milk on tap. The idea is to allow customers to fill glass bottles of milk from a keg, which they can then bring back to reuse when they need a top-up. Caroline Horn spoke with Fergus McEwen Folds from The Other Way to find out how it works.
1: We've partnered here to take our product to market with the Flurio team with the offering of our 18 litre reusable kegs to eliminate the use of single use plastics along the way.
2: What I can see in front of me, it looks like almost like you'd see at the pub. You've got uh, milk that's on tap.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and and you're right, easily identifiable as what you might see at the pub. It's it's not the frothy type of drink, it is the milk and it is creamy. And what you're saying here is the product offering in the launch with being the low-fat and the full cream milk. Further to that, the application of what's shown here today at the show is what you'll see in the retail dispensing space where the consumer has the opportunity to buy a glass bottle, fill their bottle take it home, consume it, clean it and return to store and refuel their bottle, all the way eliminating the need for those single-use plastics from dairy all the way through to consumer.
2: So you're not swapping over bottles. You buy a bottle, you clean it, you bring it back. How do you know it's going to be clean enough? Are there concerns about that?
1: Uh, absolutely, and, and fairly and, and rightly so. We educate and assist the retailers uh, along the way as well as the consumers. And we've gone through some pretty arduous um, I guess validation and verification processes with HACCP International, one for the kegs and two for the dispensing systems. Um, we've also got traceability processes associated to the kegs, so we know what's in them product-wise, what the expiry date is and so on and so forth. And from a bottle sanitising point of view, yeah, absolutely. At the point of sale, we do have uh, placards or we do have informational processes there to assist the consumer on what the best practice is, so we don't have those food safe or those food scares coming in, especially with something that is known to be, um, dare I say, as as volatile as milk when something goes wrong.
2: So every keg is 18 litres, so that's nine two-litre bottles that's saved at that time. Are you looking at supermarkets, cafes?
1: The application, in a lot of ways, is endless. Yes, absolutely, supermarkets, uh, where, where volume exists, uh, busy cafes, schools, sports clubs, uh, hotels, uh, hospitals, healthcare, aged care, childcare. Uh, the, the application is, is endless in the sense of where it can be used. It, it all aligns with, I guess, where, where those bulk volume sites exist.
2: And is there a bit of nostalgia for people with the old glass bottles? <laughs>
1: A- absolutely. Um, the amount of people who are probably from my parents' generation that have stopped by and told stories of removing the silver uh, the silver full al- token, licking the cream, um, birds getting to the bottles first and pecking the cream out, absolutely. And I think, you know, in a weird way, we've gone full circle from something that was, I guess what I've heard from a lot of the older generation, it wasn't broken, and then we introduced plastics, so and now we're going full circle to fix it, so... Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's quite funny that way. Yeah.
2: And are you getting a lot of interest locally here in SA?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. A lot of and genuine interest, I've found. in Within the greater South Australian community, there is a, a, a strong case and strong thought process behind sustainability and where those initiatives like our own, along with Florio, where they exist, um, they seem to be wanting to get snapped up.
2: Because you're already operating in Tasmania and Victoria?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, TAS, Vic, New South Wales and New Zealand, yeah. The guy called Egg Crick from the other way, he's the founder. He came from a background of having three cafes in northern Tasmania and he noticed pretty quickly the amount of plastic waste that was generated in those cafes and and sought to a way to try and fix it.
2: How does it compare in price?
1: Typically, absolutely, there's a premium. Um, Like with all things reusable, there's always a premium associated to it. It comes from, I guess, the the labour that's associated in collecting the product, returning it to the dairy, cleaning it, sanitising it and refilling it.
4: Fergus McEwen folds from The Other Way, speaking with Caroline Horn.
0: You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world,
5: on ABC Radio.
4: Could unwanted sheep's wool replace plastic and polystyrene as the main material used in packaging? An Australian company called Planet Protector is hoping it will, and they're building a $15 million processing plant in Geelong that'll be able to turn 150 tonnes of wool each week into packaging it'll use wool that isn't as suitable for clothing as, say, merino wool. And it comes as strict new packaging standards for businesses are being introduced to help cut the massive amount of packaging that's being sent to landfill annually, which is almost 3 million tonnes. Joanne Howarth, founder and CEO of Planet Protector Packaging, told Josh Becker that they expect the wool processing plant will be operational by the end of the year.
12: So polystyrene has been devastating our oceans and our planet for seven decades now. And we've developed a solution that leverages the thermal properties of wool. And um, it's designed to go inside a regular shipping carton where all components are sustainable and um, recyclable or compostable. So as you know, wool is compostable. And at its end of life, it breaks down to deliver valuable nutrients into the soil. We, we established the business six years ago with the vision to manufacture here in Australia. And sadly, because of the lack of sovereign capability, we weren't able to do that. And we had to set up our supply chain offshore. But what's really exciting at the moment is we are just building a state-of-the-art wool processing facility down in Geelong, in Victoria, and we'll have capability to take the wool directly from the sheep farmers and um, to process it into packaging.
9: Why have you made that decision to look at that processing facility in Victoria?
12: Well, firstly, we're Australian, and I, I believe firmly that we need, as a nation, to be reinstating that sovereign capability. There's only two wool scours left in the country And of course, they scour, their focus is very much on the fine merino wool. And like Australia is renowned globally for the beautiful merino wool that's used in clothing. And and they scour that wool and send it over to Hugo Boss in Italy and the likes of that. Whereas the wool, Josh, that we're using, um, this is from crossbred sheep. And Australia's sheep population has changed over time. And these crossbred sheep are being raised for their meat rather than their wool. So their wool is actually a byproduct. And because it's a bit coarse and a bit wiry, it's not suitable for clothing. And ordinarily, there's no demand for it. It goes to landfill.
9: Will there be extra demand for crossbred wool once you get this uh, facility up and running in Victoria? And what sort of a scale are you expecting to operate on? How much wool will you need for it?
12: We're establishing a $15 million facility in Geelong that has got the capacity to process up to 150 tonnes of wool every week. So, as well as packaging, we're a business that's expanding into new verticals. And you know, the focus is on sustainable materials right across the board. And one of the exciting innovations that we'll be bringing to market is a new range of building insulation
9: products. You say that consumers are demanding this from their packaging. But yeah. um, for businesses, this is a significant cost increase to go from, you know, cheap polystyrene to using woolen products for insulating their goods.
12: No, that's, that's a wrong assumption that a lot of people actually make. So our product will be on a par with polystyrene once we have our new facility in Geelong operational. Presently, our product is about a 5 to 10% premium, more expensive than polystyrene.
4: Joanne Howarth, founder and CEO of Planet Protector Packaging. This is Countrywide with Bridget Herman. Now, how much do you think a cow could sell for? Well, a Speckle Park bull from New South Wales has just set a world record for the breed. Bred at dyes crossing near Nabiac on the mid-north coast, Born Ready Shady sold for $150,000 to a Queensland Speckle Park stud. What's astonishing about this story, though, is that it's the first bull that farmers Brooke and Andrew Paff has sold, and the reserve on him was only six thousand dollars. Brooke is speaking here to Kim Honan about their shock.
11: Um, ridiculously shocked. Where I think my face kind of still looks like that, to be honest. It hasn't really sunk in yet. So yeah, it was um, it was a pretty pretty special
3: moment, that's for sure. Well, tell me about uh, Born Ready Shady. Well, when
11: Shady was born, he was a black speckle half bull calf and black speckles aren't really a high sought after item so we're a little bit disappointed to be honest when he was born but um, as he started to grow he's always been quite a standout calf and um yeah he's just he's just blossomed really the older he got the better he got and we always knew he was good but we didn't realize just how good he was
3: and why aren't the the black speckle parks sought after is it just because of the the coloring they don't have the speckles
11: that, that's exactly right, yeah. So um, there's a few reasons why black speckles can't, um, aren't so sought after, I should say. So they can't be shown as of yet, so they can't be taken to shows and, and let around. And um, also, I think people mistake them a little bit for Angus also, so that's another reason why they're not sort of so sought after. But um, the speckle park breed as a whole is sort of whitening, so all the cattle across the board are sort of getting whiter and whiter, so the black bulls are becoming um, quite a quite a sought-after item now.
3: Now, Brooke, ahead of the sale, you're pretty surprised with the scan results for Shady, and EMA of 143. Correct.
11: Yeah, that was um, that was mind-blowing, to be honest. We still don't quite believe it, to be honest. We're not 100% sure, but we're... Mm-hmm. Fairly certain that it might have even been an Australian record for an EMA for a speckle.
3: And for those not familiar with what an EMA is, describe the importance of it.
11: Um, It's an eye muscle area. So it's basically how much carcass is on the bone pretty much. So the more meat you get on the bones, the more money you get.
3: And what else did the scan results reveal about Shady?
11: Um, He was quite impressive because he's he's basically a big ball of, of muscle and meat pretty much. He's not over fat. Which is um, which is also pretty important because you don't want too fat of cattle because it's not always great for their feet and the serving and things like that. So he was just sort of a an overall complete package. So he was meaty, muscly, but not too fat.
3: And going into the sale, did you have any idea that he might fetch this much?
11: Oh God, no! Oh God, no! We we had a very very small reserve on him, given the current market where we're basically in drought again here. Um, in Dias Crossing New South Wales. So um, across the board, cattle prices are back a lot. So we weren't expecting anything like this at
4: all. Brooke Paff from Born Ready Speckle Park Cattle. And Shady's new home is at Ivory Downs Speckle Park at Collington in Queensland. This has been Countrywide with Bridget Herman. If you're tuning in from the radio, you can hear more Countrywide on the ABC Listen app. And for more stories about your food and where it comes from, head to the ABC website. That's abc.net.au.
9: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives
11: on the ABC Listen app.